0: and American generals choose their own, ensuring diversity of thought never interferes with American warmongering. How can we stand by and do nothing while our military kills and destroys lives the world over, while telling Americans that all this death and destruction protects them from terrorists when nothing could be more false?
1: Fortress on a Hill aims to change that. You good people.
0: Matt Ho. Welcome to Fortress on a Hill. Thank you for coming to chat with uh, with Kagan and me. Hey, guys. It's great to be with you. So we are going to do a couple different things today. Uh, first, we're going to talk about uh, your new campaign with the Green Party running for Senate in, in North Carolina. And then a little bit later, we're going to... Um, going to record your uh, episode zero. We're going to kind of talk about the base experiences that you had, you know, being a a young Marine officer, time in deployments, uh, you know. Yeah. um, Which I know Kagan and I've been really excited to do for for quite a while. I'm glad that we we finally were able to make schedules sync and Henry doesn't have a headache today and all those kind of things. So, Well, well, same with me too. I mean, that was my,
2: my thing as well, you know, my migraines and yeah, I mean, that's all part of it. That's what our lives are like as being combat veterans. We, you know, we have these these disabilities now that, yeah, I can't keep a schedule because my TBI symptoms, uh, you know, uh, manifest and I have a migraine and yeah, I can't do anything. So uh, exactly brother.
0: Yeah. But, um, I'm, I'm, I'm really, um, I'm really excited and energized by your your choice to run run for Senate and just going through your website and seeing the breakdowns of different issues and stuff. And just to give a little bit for everyone, and um, I'll make sure that I put Matt's uh, campaign website link in the show notes, but um, you're advocating for Medicare for All, uh, free college for everyone uh, to end our many, many wars overseas, including all the covert ones. Mm-hmm. Um, to end the war on drugs, to remove money from politics, um, term limits for members of Congress, a livable wage, and to end gerrymandering. Um, and so, you we know, we're, we're certainly going to focus on on uh, some of the foreign policy stuff, but the, the 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 there there's so many things in here that I think highlight. The difference between your your traditional milk toast, Democrats and and Republicans, and that is is that you genuinely care about the welfare of other Americans. That veterans who who don't get injuries but end up going home, going back to their hometown and working, they deserve to have a livable wage. They deserve to be able to have healthcare and have housing that does not gouge them to be able to continue living their life. Um, so uh with with kind of all that in mind tell us why you why are you running why did you why did you make this 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 massive choice well uh
2: thank you and i appreciate that introduction and, and all the kind words and, um, yeah, I was asked to run by the green party. Um, I was, I was sitting, I was sitting, uh, minding my own business <laughs> and they asked me and, and, um, you know, there are two, two aspects to it. Cause it took me a while to decide to do it. Um, one is that, uh, when they did ask me, uh, there was a number of things that were occurring, uh, and are still occurring. Uh, you know, the, 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 the next the, the, the ongoing phase of the Afghan war. So the collapse of the Afghan government, the U.S. retreat, the victory by the Taliban. And now you have this phase where uh, the Afghan people are starving and freezing and now the American government stealing their money. And, you know, it's just just that as the latest uh, um, epoch of of you know the global war on terror and, and by extension you know afghanistan really is like a living legacy of the cold war as well so all these decisions by the u.s government in terms of foreign policy and war, the effects it's having on people but then also there was uh we passed a milestone in terms of number of people killed by covid uh there was some really uh a cataclysmic uh um cataclysmic um, climate change news that had come out, you know, about the probability this idea that uh, uh, keeping it uh, not hitting 1.5 C warming, uh, keeping at 1.5 C warming is really rubbish. You know, it's it's in that more than likely we're going to get there by 2030, Um, you know, and so two degrees is is, you know, uh, well within the foreseeable future and what that actually means for our planet and our civilization. Um, you know, so that, that, and the thought with those things were that, you know, I don't have kids, but certainly I have my niece and my nephews, I've got kids. I have cousins, kids, I have friends, kids, I have my neighbor's kids. And the idea that somehow that 20, 30 years from now, um, I would I would be talking to them and I would say, you know, at one point someone asked me to run, but I decided it, it wasn't in my best interest for me to run. So there is an obligation, I felt, um, you know, particularly if you don't believe in the two party system, if you believe that we need very serious political change in order to do anything about climate, about economic inequality, about uh, 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 health care, about the wars, et cetera. Uh, and then the other thing is just the personal experiences I have in my life, uh, and particularly uh, uh, loved ones, uh, friends, neighbors who are suffering, who are dealing with the consequences of deliberate U.S. government policies. So the people I have in my life who are uh, who do not have health care, or have limited health care, uh, health defined by how much they have in their checking account, who then make dangerous choices for themselves and their family members, have to limit what they do uh, because of cost. And, and, you know, I mean, it, it goes along them with um, the number of people I know, we were just talking before we started this about housing, uh, the number of people in my neighborhood who are being forced out of the neighborhood, uh, their houses are being sold, their rents are going up. Um, you know, their landlords are changing. Uh, these are people who lived here for quite a while with their families in rentals in rented houses. And now they are being forced to move farther from where they work. They already work, far, they already live far from where they work. And now they're being forced to move farther and the costs are going up, you know, and then how are they going to pay for their children's education? You I mean, so all these different things that I see, I see, you know, the, 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 um, overdose, uh, 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 epidemic. We we have a hundred thousand people dying of of overdose every year. I mean, if you don't need a, 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 a if, if that's not the uh, definition of failure in terms of the war on drugs, I don't know what, I, I don't know what I can say to anybody, but the number of people I know. And so the number of, of, uh, 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 of boyfriends, girlfriends, husbands, wives, mothers, fathers, uh, children, et cetera, who are uh, living lives without the future they thought they were going to have because you know, their son or daughter, their boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, father, mother, sister, whoever um, died from an overdose because we have a policy in this country that we treat substance abuse and addiction as a criminal, a, a criminal endeavor as opposed to a public health issue. So, you know, another other things, I could be all day talking about these, but these are the experiences, the people I have in my life who are suffering because of this. And again, if if you believe like I do that the political system we have in place now is responsible for much of this, if not all of this, then you have to change the political system. And that's why I believe in in running third party, working with the Green Party, et cetera, in order to put that pressure on the established political system to try and get some of these changes. Because the 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 um the, 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 the existential danger we face from so many of these issues is very real. And that's what I'll say, like the, just to f- f- close this out, the um, difference between my platform, the Green Party platform, and the platforms of the Democrats or Republicans are life and death issues. I mean, there's very little overlap between what my campaign is, in, is is saying and what the Democrats and Republicans down here are saying. Um, and I think that's very important for people to understand that, you know, to get back to issues based voting, voting on your beliefs, voting on your political and economic philosophies, et cetera, as opposed to what we have now, which is really a red versus blue team type of thing.
0: I'm curious about um, what, in your mind, are the, are the key key traits key strategies that you will bring to being a senator i you know you have uh you know you have an extensive uh military background working for the state department for for a number of years um i'm blanking on the name of the uh, center for ne- international policy right mm-hmm. yeah You're a se- senior fellow over there and that is, so there's there's this, there's this huge um mixture of all these different experiences and and um you know, life events. Um, we were talking before we got started about um, our injuries, about having being yeah. veterans who have um, inv- invisible injuries, you know, num- numerous ones, and that that pain and experience can also also be brought. Um, so, uh, uh, elaborate for us on, on on what 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 are you bringing to becoming a United States senator? Well, I think it's a lot
2: of that, right? It, it, it's in my experience is what I've seen in the wars, what I've seen uh, within the U.S. government. I've worked on Capitol Hill quite a lot. I feel like I'm, I'm very uh, blessed, grateful for the experiences I've had over the last twelve years. Uh, after I left uh, the Marine Corps and the State Department and the wars, to have had activism experience, both at kind of that Washington, D.C. level where I've been in with lots of members of Congress and been around that whole Maloo, right? That circle, that muck. Um, but also too, been on the street, put my body into it, you know, been in jail, you know, like that kind of thing. That I think that's very important. Um, so I've seen... Uh, you know, the, 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 uh, the DC level and the street level and the importance of both and the importance of connecting those things. Um, I've been, uh, the experiences I've had being in with members of Congress who, um, when confronted with aspects of the war's, Uh, choose to go along with the wars rather than speak out against them. And I mean, I I, I could be here all day telling these stories, but I've had those experiences with very senior members of Congress, you know, um, who uh, always choose the political over the, the just or the right. Thing to do, you know. I mean, uh, I was in with Adam Smith, and we were in with one of his uh, Adam Smith, who is chair of the Armed Services Committee. And at at that point, I was in with him. He was either the ranking member or the chair. I can't remember which. But you know, Smith said to me, and you know, he says, "I I know that the generals and admirals lie to us every time they come in uh, to uh, you know speak to us, and I just don't feel like there's anything I can do." you know and Jack Reed who in the Senate has been chair of the Senate Armed Services Committee and and you know has more or less said the same thing you know when i when i said to him look here's the all the information you need you can see there's a Big discrepancy between what the generals are saying about what's happening in Afghanistan and what the intelligence agencies are saying, what the data actually is. And Reid's response was I don't think it's my place to get in between the generals and the intelligence agency. This is the chair of the Senate Armed Services Committee. I mean, and and, and I can go on and on and on and on. I mean, stories, same from Ike Skelton, I've heard Nancy Pelosi say such things, you know, um, all within you know, and these are all Democrats. I've heard Republicans say similar things, too. So it's not like there's, you know, there's much of a difference to me. So I, I think it's that type of experience, like in terms of the attitude I bring to it is, uh, you know, the Marine Corps, when we were in Iraq, uh, uh, General Mattis, uh, I don't know who, I, I can't, I don't believe General Mattis came up with this, but somebody did and General Mattis popularized it with the saying, no better friend, no worse enemy. And I think that's the attitude to take, going into a position with that, remembering who my friends are and who their enemies are. And and that is exactly what I would be in terms of for the working, working families, for workers and their families, for the planet. You know, that would be my defining motto um, in the sense that nobody, if I was in the Senate, nobody in the Senate is getting what they want unless workers and their families get something first. And, you know, that means bringing some constitutional lawyers with me, Um, you know, people who know how to, how to, to, to make things work and not work and, um, you know, doing my very best to ensure that Pentagon spending does not go forward. Uh, fossil fuel subsidies do not go forward. Uh, tax breaks for uh, banks and, and, and hedge funds do not continue uh, unless workers and their families get what is justly due them. Look, we've had my whole life. I was born in 73. So I was born during the Nixon administration. You know, we've my whole life, we've had deliberate government policies of financialization that have benefited the corporations, the banks, and the wealthy at the expense of workers and their families and the planet as well. And I mean, so one that has to end because it's untenable. We have, I read this thing not long ago about how in order to find a more economically unequal society, you have to go back you know, several thousand years to visit with the Egyptians and the pharaohs to see this level of economic inequality, right? You know, so there, and that is, that is untenable. That is, uh, that is just not, it cannot last. It it, it will collapse. And, and as we see people being able to um, unafford the most basic Essentials, things that I think many of us agree are human rights, uh, health care, housing, education, as well as having jobs, uh, being unable to to have those things in their lives because of profit, because of cost, simply, um, you know, y- y- you say, well, this is the stand I would take to make sure that uh, the wor- workers and their families receive what is their due. Um, and it, of course, if for 50 years we could have these financialization policies that benefited the very few, then it's only just that we could have policies that benefit, uh, you know, the, the the vast majority of America, Americans, you know, workers and their families.
1: I think it's really interesting um, that you brought up a lot of wonderful things that I totally agree with. Um, I think the thing, I think the thing that, uh, frustrates me the most is that a lot of people don't understand that we don't have a lot of time to make these choices because right. like the data is uh, is completely uh, proven that we don't have a lot of time right to turn things around before the planet burns like us up, and if we don't do that it's only going to get worse for everybody. And so it's so frustrating to talk to some people that they want to think about the immediate cost about, you know, what it would be to totally transform our systems. But like I always tell people, what's the cost if we don't, like we're already seeing these insane fires. We're seeing these insane floods. We're seeing more, worse storms. You had to deal with that a lot in the last couple of months in your area. And we, we've had uh, fires and stuff pretty bad around us and, It's just, it's so frustrating to like get people to try to understand that like the choice will be made for us if we don't do something about it. And if we can do everything we can, we can actually come up with a solution because we're ahead, we're still a little bit ahead of it, but the window is closing.
2: Yeah, and I'm I'm becoming unfortunately increasingly increasingly believe I'm increasingly understanding that that window is smaller and smaller and may not even exist anymore for us to mitigate the worst. Um, And that's why I think any type of climate legislation has to have these this economic components. If we are understanding that. We are going to have a societal infrastructure and economic infrastructure collapse because of the burdens of a changing climate, which are massive. And and what we're seeing is just the beginning. Uh, And the scientists, you know, the IPCC, the UN's uh, Climate Advisory Group, uh, put out a report last week where they made it very clear that, look, our models have been wrong. You know we've been too conservative. And this is what the science has been saying for decades. We're we're too conservative. We're not, we're not really accurately modeling this. And we can't because there's positive feedback cycles that occur as it gets warmer, as it gets wetter. You know, the, the feedback cycles that occur are very difficult to model, but what we do know is that it's worse and worse. And I think the exact words of the IPC last week was that climate. Change is coming harder and faster than anyone expected it would, and um, yeah, the, the 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 societal and the economic infrastructure that will uh, have to sustain this. You know, say here in the North in North Carolina, uh, we're looking at sea level rise, of course, and that means how many cities on our coasts are going to be inundated. And people think that that means that well, water has to be over the level of a house and sharks are going to be swimming through windows and doors and like, it's going to be this, you know, Aquaman type environment. No, it doesn't. It's something that, you know, when talking about salt water, you don't need very much for very long to make places uninhabitable. You know, you you need a couple of inches of water for, uh, uh, you know, seven or eight percent of the year. I think it is to make a place uninhabitable because that salt water destroys everything, you know. So what happens when we have literally dozens of towns in North Carolina that become uninhabitable by 2050, say um, that where do those people go? How do we absorb those people? How do we relocate those people? How do we deal with that? We're we're already talking about housing costs now What about housing costs, then where areas are completely on, you know, we see it here in North Carolina, we have people showing up who are climate refugees from California, you know, people are like, I'm not dealing with another year of the fires, you know, I can't go through that I can't deal with the anxiety of it, let alone the the, 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 the right to the reality, you know, we're, we're dealing with the costs. Um, A a very high percentage of the food price increases we've seen in the last years have come from the heat and drought out west. Look, half of our grains uh, that a lot of that go to for animal feed um, have been um, uh, 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 the, the, the price increases have been a result of crop devastation due to heat and drought and occasionally fire. And and we're seeing that in costs of milk and butter and ribeye steaks and everything else. Uh, So, you know, the, the, the facts are here. We have had in North Carolina, two once in a year hurricanes in five years, or once in a century hurricanes in five years. So, and what the, what the scientists who have been wrong only because they've been too conservative are saying is that it's coming harder and faster. So we think we have a, 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 a refugee, a migrant crisis now on the border where we have 22,000 people in captivity down there. Well, you know, you're not talking about really anything compared to what will occur when we have uh, climate refugee crises in in two decades or so of hundreds of millions of people, including when Central America becomes so hot, it's uninhabitable. Where, you know, where do you think those people are going to go? And so how do we have these uh, aspects of climate of a climate plan, of a green new deal, if you will, that incorporates all this economic infrastructure and societal in- infrastructure to absorb this and allow us to survive it. Um, and that's something that I, very few people are talking about. Um, you know, uh, most of the stuff about climate change now is the science fiction of carbon capture and you know greenwashing and you know this idea that somehow the very corporations that have gotten us into this are the ones who should benefit and profit and make money out of their, you know, getting us out of it, which again, is everything
0: I've seen is, is more or less science fiction. So, um, I'd like to switch over, talk about some, some anti-war topics for a minute. Yeah. Um, I had, uh, heard on an interview I, I found on your website. I can't remember the the fellow's name. You talk, I think he was up in New York, uh, radio, radio host. Um, you mentioned that seven out of 10 briefings that Congress's defense committees receive are from think tanks. You know, they're, right. not, from, they're not from generals. They're not from DA uh, civilians, DOD right. civilians. They are literally right from Brookings and AEI and all, all of that kind of stuff.
2: Right, exactly, and I, I got that from you know, working up there, uh, you know, as, as a think tank person, going in and talking to members of Congress and their staffs, you know. So, um, but hearing that from uh, in that particular case. Uh, it was a, 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 a army officer who was assigned to Senator Bob Casey's office, Bob Casey from Pennsylvania. And uh, yeah, he was very upset by this. You know, he was he had been in he had been in the Congress now for a little bit, working as a uh, Pentagon liaison uh, to, you know, a, a senator. And um, yeah, very upset. He was very upset by that because he, he knew that this was not right. This is not this is not this is not uh, this is very corruptible. And it is. And you can see this if you watch a C-SPAN a uh, uh, House Armed Services briefing or, uh, um, you know, a, a Senate Foreign Relations Committee briefing, you'll see a lot of times the products that the senators or members of Congress use when they present something, a map or a graph, you'll see in a little corner that, you know, the Institute for Study of War or CISIS or someone like that had printed that thing out and provided it. So, you know, it's this loop that occurs where Congress appropriates this money, massive amounts of money. Now we're talking about over, we're talking this next budget is going to be $800 billion or more. Um, More than half of that goes to private contractors. Uh, Those contractors then put a chunk of that money uh, back into the think tank industry. And the think tank industry, of course, is on the media and everything else. And, but they're also, going back into Congress to lobby and to say, this is why we need more. And it's predominantly it's spread across uh, both Democratic and Republican uh, think tanks. You know, so this money is, is basically in a loop uh, cycle. And it also too the Pentagon, the CIA, the State Department, the NSC, they all actually fund think tanks directly themselves. So you know, um, you begin to see how that's corruptible. You know, one of the more uh, prominent examples was a number of years ago, where New America Foundation was receiving money from the State Department. At the same time, it was putting out these studies saying that drones were not killing any civilians in Pakistan or Afghanistan, right? I mean, and you see that they're receiving millions of dollars from the State Department, and they're putting out. We're very, very uh, well-received and supposedly this credible organization, New America, America Foundation. So New York Times, The Washington Post, MSNBC, whoever is quoting New America as an a authoritative uh, a, a source for, look, no, the drones aren't killing civilians. And, you know, you learn, of course, we know that's complete bullshit, you know, that killing lots of the civilians will never know the true amount. But, you know, you see how that money corrupts, you know, um, and I know uh, people who are part of, uh, uh, uh people who've left th- think tanks because they were censored, uh, you know, because what they were writing or what they were advocating for was not in the interest of the donors, you know, so it is. So when you have this situation where rather than uh, members of Congress and their staffs receiving briefings from uh, the CIA or DIA or from uh, the State Department's INR, whoever, right, or the Pentagon or whatnot. They're receiving briefings from uh, majority of the time uh, think tanks that are funded by the defense industry and in some cases directly by uh, the Pentagon or CIA or, 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 or whoever themselves.
0: There was a, a, a second thing that you had mentioned, and this this blew my mind even a little bit more than, than what we just discussed, that if you're counting the DOD as the biggest branch and the Department of Veterans Affairs as the second biggest branch, that the third biggest branch, by how much money it spends, is our debt and interest payments for past wars. Right. <laughs> I, I, I... It... it like you said, it just, it, it, it just, it, it, it enriches a very specific part of the population and everybody else is, is oblivious, you know, it, 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 um, but I can't remember how many billion dollars it was that you, that you mentioned that the, what, what the, how much it's, is going It's more oh, yeah. than $150 billion a
2: year. Uh, in in debt and interest payments on past military spending and war, you know, and this is information that's put out by Brown's cost of Brown university's cost of war project by the national priorities project by um war resistors international you know so all these groups that have have very serious credentials behind them they're just not making this up they're doing a very deliberate and con- in many ways conservative estimate uh of that to get that number and you see that yeah i mean you're talking about if you were to you know put dod at 775 billion i think this next request for the va is 270 billion dollars uh which about 150 of that is is uh uh, benefits pay right so it, it's it's non discretionary required by law and about 115 120 billion of it will be um, uh, uh, discretionary um, and then after that you have uh, you would have if it was its own agency right it's with its own building You know, in DC or whatever, its own workforce, everything else, it would be the debt and interest payments for past military spending and wars, which would be about $150 billion. According to Brown University, we've already spent a trillion dollars, I believe, just on the Iraq and Afghan wars. So, just on those wars, direct costs for those wars, we've already spent a trillion dollars on debt and interest payments, not including all the other military spending, you know, and of course this accumulates, right? So a lot of that $150 billion a year we're spending, how much of that can be traced back to the Reagan buildup, uh, right? I mean, so uh, yeah, I mean, it goes to show Plato's, uh, Plato's expression about only, you know, only, uh, I think it was Plato, only the war have seen, only the dead have ever seen the end of war. I mean, so as veterans, we live with the consequences of the war, certainly the impacted populations, the victims of the war, the people have been brutalized by it. You know, they, they 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 never have any relief. Uh, even if the bombs stop falling and everything, you know, if the sanctions end, you know, I mean, take example the people in Iraq, where people have higher cancer rates in parts of Iraq than uh, Japanese did in Hiroshima and Nagasaki after the atomic bombings. You know, I mean, so even if you're a wave a magic wand and make all of Iraq's troubles go away uh, troubles that we produced. If we were, you know, you still have this issue where we poison the land, uh, the water over there and their children are going to die for generations because of it. So, you know, it, you know, so there's this aspect that war never ends. And then you can see it financially, right. In terms of, yeah, we put this on the credit card, man. And that's how it works. You got to keep paying for it. And a lot of people benefit from it. Right. You know, cue the whole George Carlin, you know uh, it's a big club and you're not in it. And that's absolutely the case. I mean, these banks, they, they, they the whole way it works. Yeah. A lot of people profit from this.
1: You, you were mentioning before too, about the, the Congress's inability to do or unwillingness to do anything about it. And something that I always think about too, is like the job aspect, because, We don't make a lot of things in America, but we do make a lot of weapons. And so it's so easy for even even somebody as like lefty as Bernie that we have in Congress right now is still supportive of the F-35s because they make parts in his state. And right. they, they know that these defense contractors know that if you are in Congress and you're wanting to look at, like, especially the F-35, which has been a boondoggle from the beginning of its entire existence, every pl- airplane expert says that it does, it tries to do too many things and it does them terribly. Right. And we have planes that already do those different missions and do them well, which is why we've kept doing them. And, but, like, you know, they, they make 40... They make parts in 48 states for that plane because they know that any congressperson that is like, hmm, this is gonna cost us a trillion dollars over its life cycle and it's a piece of crap plane. Why, why would we support this? But they know the defense contractor, the defense contractors will come to them and say, Oh, okay, well, uh good luck telling your constituents that you don't have a job anymore. You know, and it's like they have this vice grip on Congress in so many different ways. That if you are in power, if you are a person who is responsible to your citizens, that they know how to to manipulate you to, into supporting them.
2: Right, it's just, it comes down to a, a thing of, of you're gonna you're, they're gonna run advertisements against you um, that say uh, you're against jobs. You know, right. you voted against the F thirty five that cost two hundred and fifty jobs because in your district they make. You know, whatever the tires for the F-35 or something, you know, and yeah, and I've seen that. And, and you know, um, uh, Jim McGovern, uh, who is a, a really great progressive Democrat from Massachusetts, uh, I know he was in that position where they did that. They, some aspect of the F-35 is produced in Jim's district. You know, some who knows what it is circuit board or the blades for a turbine fan or who knows what, you know, what I mean, but like, yeah, and it's not a lot of jobs, it's 150, 200, 300 jobs. That's how a lot of these things are, because the military industrial complex, military manufacturing is very low labor. It, it's very au- highly automated, very uh, very highly skilled. But so the number, I mean, we, you guys have seen the same studies I have that like, you know, it, the the military industrial complex is like the worst investment in terms of job creation out of like 19 different industries. It is last in terms of jobs created just because it's not a high, high, not a high job intensity uh, field or, 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 or industry. So yeah, I know it, it, but they're very smart about this. They understand it. They've got, um, I mean, they've got masses of people, um, masses and masses of people working within that industry. Uh, you know, I, I say to folks who, who who know Washington, D.C. and Northern Virginia pretty well, if, if you look north from uh, I-395, you stand on I-395 as you're going to drive into Washington, D.C., and if you look to your left, all the way up to the Key Bridge in Roslyn, and then look to your right, Uh, all the way down to uh, Reagan National Airport down in Crystal City, you know, and that whole span, that whole riverbank on the northern Virginia side there, all the way up from Rosling and Arlington, all the way down to the airport. That is all Pentagon. The Pentagon's kind of in the middle of it. But that whole landscape, all those buildings, you know, the hundreds of thousands of people that work there, almost all of them are Pentagon. You know, the only people who really aren't are kind of the people working in the hotels and the restaurants and the bars, et cetera, in that area. But it is from 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 that whole along that whole riverbank. It is. I mean, so you can imagine that's just one aspect of the military industrial complex. But can you imagine that type of of of, of man of, of, of men and women, uh, of person put into uh, any other type of endeavor? Education, healthcare, research and development for you know uh, healthcare, whatever it is, you know, and, and so that's how they 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 have uh, the amount of money is, is obscene, and um, it is uh, uh, Michael the the economist Michael Hudson whose book from the early seventies uh, super imperialism I, I recommend to anyone who wants to understand. Um, how the money plays into all this on the international financial level, the world reserve currency and everything else. The reason Nixon took it off, took us off the gold exchange in 1971, except all that kind of stuff. Um, But uh, he just had an article in counterpunch in the last few weeks, discussing exactly this, discussing the primacy of the military industrial complex, along with, uh, you know, the, 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 the financial insurance and real estate, Uh, Sector and then uh, to the oil, gas, and mining sector. Now, those are really the only three industries the United States possesses. And those are the three industries that possess themselves the Congress. And they don't have to possess the whole thing, they have to just possess key districts in terms of making decisions. Um, But one of the things, like they said, uh, you know, uh, like he points out, is that just as you guys described they're smart about making sure that every district and they and I and there's evidence that when they've decided to put the 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 choose the subcontractor who's gonna build the you know whatever piece of the f thirty five that they've chosen subcontractors in members of Congress's districts who are not disposed to supporting the military industrial complex so it it it's, it really is quite insidious, but it's also quite
0: brilliant so um the the uh, the last thing I wanted to, to bring up before we talk we talk about some uh, episode zero stuff is um, in terms of um, in terms of your your injuries we talked about that a little bit that the the you know the, the invisible nature of of some of the things that veterans end up getting you know that we don't even find out until years and years later, what it actually is and whether or not yeah. the, the VA will end up covering it. Um, I'm I'm curious to hear about how that aspect will play into your role as a, as a Senator.
2: Well, I, I think, um, you know, it would be one of those things that for, it's first and foremost, you know, in a sense of uh, for veterans specifically understanding what they've been through uh, and what their families have been through, what the caregivers have been through, what their communities go through. Um, you know, that's, you know, that, that of course will be there, but it also brings to me, look, I, I'm fortunate now it's covered by the VA. You know, I couldn't work for five years because of my TBI symptoms. And fortunately, you know, and, and the VA was, was, it took years for them to catch up with the benefits and everything. So I had to live off of support from my family and from, you know, my partner and, um, you know, so, but I was fortunate the VA came through. A lot of people don't have that. A lot, I mean, too many people don't have that. Millions of people don't have that. With 90 million people who are uninsured or underinsured in this country. Um, you know, about 30 million people without insurance, about 60 million people or so that are underinsured. Uh, we've, this very real danger that the um, uh, Biden administration is gonna allow the public health emergency to expire in the next few months which would mean about 20 million people will be kicked off of Medicaid. About 80 million people are on Medicaid in this country and about 20 million are on it because of the pandemic and because it's a public you know, national emergency. So, you know, not having that support, not having that health care as well, then too, the other uh, uh, aspects of you know support I've received, you know whether it be a VA loan to purchase a house, whether it be educational benefits to go to school. I mean, these are all things that have such immense uh, 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 rewards for society, not just for the individual, but for society. That understanding and seeing how that can and needs to be multiplied universally. So that we need to have Medicare for all, a true true medic universal healthcare, cradle to grave, you know, no exclusions. Uh, you know, we need to have college for all, right? Universal higher education. Because just as in threat, you look back in history and you say, All right, you know, at one point. Very few people are going to school. And then they start to, you know, and then in the 17th, 18th century, they started doing more public school and, you know, elementary type education. Uh, And then by the end of the end of the 19th century, uh, you know, you had very well established um, uh, 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 elementary and, uh, you know, primary education, high school level education throughout the United States. And it continues to grow right? So just of that understanding that we need this education as a society, that just because we say that, it, you know, that uh, uh, just because we say one thing doesn't deny the reality that education advances and people need that education. So just as 100 years ago, we it was was argued that, look, yeah, uh, public education needs to be uh, well-funded and it needs to be available to all. And of course, that wasn't the case for a long time in terms of, of racial issues. But But, you know, you need to have at this point now the understanding that what high school was what say elementary education or primary education was hundreds of my years ago? What high school education was fifty years ago? College education is now, and so that needs to be understood because if you under, if you if you believe that healthcare, I'm mean, sorry, education is a human right, you know, and the same with housing. You, mean, you you see the cost of housing, another human right, you know, and you look at the uh, 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 the 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 success of rent control. Or tying rental incomes into uh, the, the how much somebody makes, so that people aren't paying more than twenty or twenty-five percent of their income for their housing. I mean, the benefits to society for that um, are are, massive because it it provides for people to be living uh, lives where they are investing in themselves, where they are able to uh, um, uh, have careers, uh, create businesses, become entrepreneurs, et cetera, without the fear of not having healthcare, not being able to afford housing, not being able to ensure that their children have the education that they need. I mean, so these are all benefits, investments that have to grow. And and, and this is what I get from my own personal experience with the VA and seeing the VA programs in action, you know, and man, this is a smart thing to do, you know? I mean, yeah, it's compassionate. Sure. Absolutely. And is it a human right? I, yes, I believe, but it is also the smartest, uh, economic decision we can make something that will pay for itself over and over and over again. Absolutely. So you know that that's that's uh, um, you know that that's that's one way that you know my experiences translate into what I believe in terms of policy and what you know if I was in the Senate uh, I would have as my you know primary primary motivations.
0: Yeah, the uh, joining the military being part of the. Poverty draft should not be the only guaranteed jobs program that our country provides. And along alongside that, there is the, right. you know, people just need jobs and they need health care. I had served with numerous people who said that I'm I'm staying because I know that I'm cared for, my family is cared for, and and willing to continue carrying those burdens because they are so hard to get at a level that a person could afford and without having to be lost through job connections, you know, if that if that uh, turned worse.
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, and even even on a personal level, uh, a lot of us know people who stay married. They get separated, but they stay married because if they get divorced, one of the one of them loses health care. I mean, you see that happen all the time. You know, and there are two, the number of people that, you know, that like I had a girlfriend years ago, this is where maybe I was really starting to understand this, who, what she wanted to do, if she hadn't allowed to do it, she probably would have been a great success in terms of baking and cooking and other things. But because she had healthcare issues, she had to keep working her job as a consultant, which she hated. (laughs) I mean, she hated it. And all she wanted to do was to teach people how to cook, right? I mean, so she didn't have that you know, that, that requirement, you know, and then, um, then also to the fear that like, yeah, with, in terms of, of when we start talking about wages and jobs, you know, uh, $15 minimum wage. Yeah. That was great. Five, six years ago, maybe, but $15 minimum wage is not enough to live on in most parts of North Carolina now. And I imagine where you guys are, it's the same way, you know, in North Carolina last year, Not now. Last year, the average wage needed to rent a two bedroom apartment, you know, fair market rent. And, you know, you're paying no more than one third of your income. Right. For for your housing um, was eighteen dollars and fifty cents an hour. Well, the average worker in North Carolina makes sixteen dollars and thirty cents an hour. I mean, so and that was last year. And since that time, rents have gone up 20 percent in North Carolina. So it's this idea that somehow, great, we're gonna. And and don't get me wrong, it it needs to be increased. And the fifteen is what it gets to. Okay, that's better than where it's at now, that's for sure. However, the um, idea that then you raise it in what we go another fifteen years before it gets touched again. So this notion that any type of livable wage, in which I like when some people call it a thriving wage, because it allows people to to fully live. the uh it needs to be an annually adjusted livable wage you know my my thoughts and there's a number of ways you could do this my thoughts are to tie it into housing costs so whatever the, the housing cost is for your local area uh you know that should be what how the minimum wage is factored and that makes a little more sense new york city and san francisco are more expensive than wake forest north carolina Right, so you know that that that's, but you know, there's other ways we could do it, and I'm open to other solutions too. But we certainly cannot have this phenomenon where uh, wages continue to just stagnate, particularly now as we see inflation costs. You know, we just the number came out what just the other day, what 7.9 percent inflation for the year. You know, and certainly uh, uh, key key costs, uh, housing, fuel, uh, other things, healthcare, which has been going up for as long as I know, um, you know, they are much higher than
1: 8%. I just read something the other day that was talking about, um, livability and it was saying average for the national, like to have like a thriving life of what you're talking about. People would on average need to be making $122,000 a year. Yeah. And like, that is definitely, that's like more than half of what people are making, or that's like double what, people are on average making together even if you're lucky.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I know I'm North Carolina, the the, the, the median household income here is $55,000. Right? So half the house, half half of households make less than $55,000, right. right? I mean, so yeah, I mean, and you're talking 120 I, I believe that. I believe that where you're at the point where, you know, 122 a year where you're comfortable, you can put you can you can save money. You know, you can uh, you know, you don't have to worry about emergencies. You're able to take vacations, you're able to your kids need something, it's it's there, it's available. Your car hat, you know, you gotta get new tires. So five hundred bucks for new tires is not a huge issue for you. Yeah, I understand that 122 number. Yeah. I mean, I, I certainly would like to be making that. <laughs>
1: it's it's nice with housing because like i work with housing i house homeless veterans and Mm -hmm. um so i've i've like really plugged into the my housing market here and the issues and it's just been like um you know i just there's a lot of people that just don't think about it like we have a big homeless camp problem here because the rents have increased so fast yeah and like when I when people ask me when they know what I do and they ask me that question, like, oh, what do you what do you think is the problem here? And it's like, people can't afford to live here. Like yeah. that is all that is the number one reason across the country why people are homeless. It's not because of drugs, it's not because of mental health. Those things are a part of it. Right. But the number one reason is because they cannot afford to live in their own neighborhood. And right. people in America, like some people say, like, well, they should just move. And I'm like, it costs money to move. And what does that say about our economy when we're telling people to leave where they live? Like, that's the sign of a declining economy. That's right. You make people move.
2: That is not, yeah, that's not very, and that's not a very robust, uh, uh, well-developed economy where you have to, okay, you need to become a migrant. You need to, you know, or a refugee. You know, so the house across the street from me Uh, it's small, like my house three and it's a three bed, one bath, a thousand square feet, you know, and, uh, family that was living there who had to move when the house got sold and they had to move. And she now works farther from, like I was saying before, farther from where, you know, but, um, where she works, um, you know, they were paying $800 a month. And now that house is $1,300 a month. Um, and there's, uh, all kinds of fees associated with it. So of course you got to put in your security deposit and everyone understands that, but there's also like a $250 move in fee, you know, I mean, just all kinds of different things that where do you, if you don't have that cash, where do you get it from? You know, and you see the numbers, what's it? 55% of Americans can't afford a $1,000 emergency, you know, I mean, that, that's, you know, $1,000, anyone can tell you is not a lot. I mean, my my furnace, uh, the blower went out on the HVAC, uh, of course, on the coldest day of the year, because that's how it works. I mean, for re- of course it does, because it's working the hardest, right? So that's when it went out. And um, yeah, it cost me $700, you know, and fortunately, the company that did it for me was understanding and they gave me like six weeks to pay it. So that I was able to like kind of cram together $700, you know, but now that I paid it, like, I hope to God nothing happens in the next couple of weeks because I don't have the money to pay for anything. You know, I'm I'm, going to be, this is another month where I am going to be like, whoa, you know, where's my, you know, am I going to end up? Uh, with a, with a, in, in the black, or, or am I going to be a negative balance, you know, because that's just, uh, um, you know, a lot of people live like that. Uh, I, I, I think what I find as I'm running as a green, um and people are upset with me because i'm being a spoiler for the democrats or whatever and i get the same from our friends who are libertarians because they get the same nonsense from the republicans you know oh you're you're gonna you know um uh you know you running as a libertarian is gonna mean the democrats gonna win like that nonsense and um the uh uh most of these people are on the democratic side who, when I say, look, you know, if I'm not in this race, there's going to be no one on the ballot who's in favor of Medicare for all. There's no one on the ballot who's in favor of student debt cancellation. There's no one on the ballot in favor of, of a livable wage, as we've been describing, of housing, uh, uh, doing something for housing. You know, the Democrat down here, her her plan for housing is the same the same stuff we've heard for decades, tax grants for developers, and we're gonna set aside land and all that. It just people make money off of that. And what do we see? Just like you're saying, our homeless population continues to grow. Uh, meanwhile, people are living with family and friends. Uh, people can't afford housing or they're paying, you know, 30, 40, 50 percent of their, their their take-home pay. For housing you know what i mean so you know it's like if you want someone who's going to end the war on drugs you know that kind of cut pentagon spending well you know and a lot of other things then you have to have someone else on the ballot other than the democrat and the people who can test me on that not all of them but many of them don't know anyone who are living lives as we've been describing when i bring up the war on drugs they don't have neighbors who have probation officers who are showing up at their houses because of some fucking marijuana conviction from 10 years ago. They don't know anyone like that. They certainly don't have anyone in their lives who are kind of as we were saying before making those dangerous decisions about healthcare because their healthcare is based upon how much they can pay out of their checking account because they've got a $10,000 deductible, you know, while they're paying a $500 a month premium. You know, I mean, like so it's those kinds of things I really see and I get a real feel for, you know, uh, in terms of the immediacy and the urgency and what I think brings, you know, like the three of us to this point politically, but also too, to to many other people, because it's it's the experience of our lives and it's the experience of the lives of, of those we love and those in our neighborhoods.
1: We get asked often what people can do to help support the podcast. One very powerful way is to help us grow and reach more people is to leave us a review. You can do that on iTunes, which is the best place to leave a review. iTunes does reach the most people these days. The next best place is Facebook. Go to our Fortuna Hill Facebook page and look for the Reviews tab. And finally, there's Patreon, where we're blessed to have an array of wonderful supporters helping us for some of the podcast's expenses. Those who contribute $10 or more a month will be mentioned here as an honorary producer, helping keep you, our listeners, stocked with new episodes. But you don't have to contribute $10 a month to help us. For as little as a dollar a month, you can help us keep going, paying for hosting and storage fees, transcribing all the new episodes, promoting and expanding the podcast, and more I'm sure I can't think of at the moment. So let's bring out these honorary producers, and they are Fahim Shirazi, James O. Barr, Adam Bellows, Eric Phillips, Paul Appel, Julie Dupree, Thomas Benson, Janet Hansen, Tristan Oliver, Daniel Fleming, Michael Caron, Zach H., Ren Jacob, Howard Reynolds. Why I am Anti War Podcast, Korgoth, Rick Coffee, and the Status Quo Podcast. You are all the engine that helps us power the podcast. Thank you so much. However, if Patreon isn't your style, you can contribute directly to us through PayPal at paypal.me slash fortressonahill, or please check out our store on Spreadshirt for some great Fortress merch. There's t-shirts, mugs, phone cases, and a whole lot more. And now let's get back to the podcast.
0: So I think uh, I think this is a good time to to switch over to talking um, some episode zero uh, topics uh, for a bit. Um, for anybody that's that's not familiar with it, um, that we we started this episode zero series a while ago to talk with different anti-war veterans about their earlier experiences kind of you know the, the houses they grew up in and you know how did they look at the military and mm-hmm. um i'm i'm really thankful that matt is uh is willing to go under the knife here a little bit and talk about his his you know what 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 uh what made the legos that is is the the impressive matt ho now <laughs> um so um, would you uh tell us a little bit about your hometown where you kind of where you grew up and about your life just in general um, before you joined the military
2: yeah so i was born um gosh i, I was born in, in in northern new jersey suburb of new york city uh bergen county is a town called fairlawn is where i grew up very nice uh uh well to do uh now it is a, a completely upper upper middle income wealthy town um, unless there's pockets of it that I'm not aware of. Um, I was the first person born in my family into such a place. My parents had grown up poor and my dad in, in the Bronx and in upper Manhattan and my mom in Yonkers, they're both the children of immigrants. Uh, my mom's family from Spain, my dad's from I- Ireland and Germany. And, um, so they grew up very poor and, um, you know, my dad kind of at one point, you know, well, he was working three different jobs and, you know, living that life uh, for a variety, you know, kind of Forrest Gumped himself into a management position. Like, honestly, it was one day that he was working in a transistor factory and one day his uh, the, the assistant uh, foreman uh, quit or something and he happened to be standing there doing whatever he was doing and somebody said, Hey, Ho can do that job. And he became the assistant foreman and that kind of led him into management. Right. And then, one thing after another. And he ends up becoming, uh, you know, working for an industrial gas company, uh, you know, making oxygen and that kind of stuff and and does that for his career. And he's able to, we move out of the city, you know, the big triumph, this is 19, when they moved, it was like 1970, 1971, I was born in 73. So you can imagine that, right? They're getting out, they're getting into the suburbs, like that success. And as like the grandson of immigrants, you know, that's a big deal, you know, so that's how I was brought up. And so I was brought up in middle class. And then by the time I was in high school, we were upper middle class because my dad had done well career wise and my mom was working as well. So I, I didn't have any, uh, uh, you know, compared to my older brother and sister who are my half brother and sister, completely different way of growing up. You know, my, my older brother slept for years with my dad on a pullout couch on the bed you know, and, and like that type of, he you know, my, my sister and brother were raised by my dad and by my grandmother until he met my mom, you know, like, so the, even just in, in between siblings, the life experiences were very difficult. And I was fortunate to, to grow up without wanting anything. And my brother and sister had the exact opposite. They grew up poor in New York city. Um, so uh, you know, that kind of, you know, I go to college, I, I graduate college, I end up uh, working in finance and publishing. And a couple of years after college, I, uh, yeah, end up in the Marine Corps. Uh, I was bored and, and um, yeah, I wanted to to take part in the, the big, you know, movements of history and test myself and do something serious and have responsibility and, you know, et cetera, et cetera.
0: Yeah. How, um, what was your relationship like with the military growing up did uh, was there veterans in your in your family or people that you knew um and and did any of their experiences kind of color your outlook it um no very
2: limited my uncle billy had been in the germany had been in the army in germany in the 50s my dad because he had kids had gotten into the national guard so he, you know, he was born in 36. So he was, he, you know, uh, Korean war was over by the time he was 18. So he, he wouldn't have gone anywhere anyway. So he was in the guard. Uh, you know, he was like, good stories about that, you know, I mean, him and the guys in the neighborhood, you know, so I didn't have that. I had a, uh, I remember I had a cousin who had joined the Marine Corps and got kicked out for selling cocaine in the barracks. Um, and then I had a, um, one thing I've learned recently though is, is, um, I had, a, 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 a my grandfather's brother was in the first world war. One thing I learned on ancestry.com was in my movie. And he was with an artillery unit that when I looked it up, so a very significant, uh, combat in the first world war. So, you know, um, uh, uh, you know, my, my, my great uncle, uh had those experiences and and same thing too um my great uncle my mom's side my uncle gabby um he went ashore the second day of normandy and um of the normandy invasion and this is something he didn't talk to anybody about and he got wounded about 10 or 12 days later at calais and he carried that shrapnel in his body for the rest of his life. And I remember him talking to me about it after I got into the Marine Corps. And I, he told me things that his daughter had never heard. Right. You know, so, and he was really interesting actually, you know, in the sense that he was one of the first 50 people drafted in 1940 when they instituted the draft, um, like literally in the top 50 and uh, his number was, yeah. And, uh, um, and he was drafted, and he they got sent to California, and he spent the the year of his enlistment, I guess from what I understand, driving up the California beaches in a jeep looking for Japanese submarines or something, you know. And then Pearl Harbor happens, and hey, guess what, Gabino? Uh, you're not going back to your family until 1946, and that's what happens. Even when he got wounded and almost died in France, um, they didn't send him back home. He got evacuated to England, and then. Uh, recovers in a hospital. And then when he's well enough and he's in a wheelchair, he's supervising German POWs, you know what I mean? So it's like, you know, just a different kind of whole, the the, the it, it, things were different, but you know, it did have, I mean, the wars did have an effect on my family. My, my dad grew up in a very tough household. His, his father was an alcoholic and very abusive. And my dad says to me, the only time he ever saw his father happy, and the only time he saw his father not spend all his money at the bar kind of thing was, was when he was working at the shipyards during the Second World War, you know, in Brooklyn. Um, so th- it was there, but I wasn't aware of it. And you know, it was you know, I certainly saw enough of my share of John Wayne movies. You know, I saw the Green Berets probably a few too many times, um, right? And then certainly then the effect that the, the the militarization that comes from watching films like Star Wars. You know, the, as, as Walter Wink said, the, the uh, myth of redemptive violence that plays into it. And, um, yeah, my, my first and I'm interested in it, in um, in uh, uh, high school. I'm interested in the military because I, I really want to do service. I really want to be part of something uh, that's heroic um, and then what happens actually is I, I, I get a, I apply to the service academies. I get a, a accepted to West Point. I get an ROTC scholarship. But that was 1990, 1991 during the first Iraq war. And my uh, disgust at what I saw happening in Kuwait, in Iraq, you know, that war for oil uh, that puts me off of that. And I turned down uh, those opportunities. And I go to college and I never really think about it and studying philosophy and literature and religion. And, and, um, you know, and then a couple of years afterwards, and this is, you know, I, I got to officer candidate school for the Marine Corps in January, 1998, you know, again, I was bored and I had this mistaken belief, uh, 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 that, what was occurring historically then was not the product of previous historical occurrences that somehow, and I think a lot, of, a lot of generations do this. They believe that what is occurring now, they will say, oh yeah, of course, World War II came about because of the Treaty of Versailles and the First World War, and World War I came about because of the 19th century European wars and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, we understand that, but when we apply it to our own generation, I, I think that a lot of us feel that we are exempt from that type of historical uh, antecedent, right? That historical precedent, that historical uh, uh, cause. And that's how I felt. And I felt that you could say that the war in Vietnam, uh, you know, the Korean War or the wars in Central America or whatever you want to talk about was not connected to what was currently happening. Even the first Iraq war was uh, uh, an outlier. And what was occurring now in 98 was significantly different. And I could say I also went to an incredibly good, I went to a very good public high school in New Jersey. I was the class uh, history award winner. I went to a very good private college. Uh, and, but I never read any Chomsky. I never read any Zinn. You know, I never read any Angela Davis, certainly never read any, you know, the the Martin Luther King you read was the letter from a Birmingham jail, you know, certainly not his later stuff, right? Certainly not the Beyond Vietnam sermon, right? You know, like that kind of stuff. It's certainly no Malcolm X. I remember watching Malcolm X uh, when I was in college and having no idea at all about the person. Other than that, he was somehow involved with Louis Farrakhan and the Nation of Islam, and these guys are militant and they're dangerous, and et cetera, et cetera. And watching that film uh, was was I always remember that feeling of like this holy shit. I don't know anything at all about anything. And then at the same time, too, reading Cornell West's book Race Matters and going to see Cornell West speak at my college, and you know, same kind of thing. But, but you know, that was very limited. You know, and so I find myself January 98 at officer candidate school thinking that somehow the current events of the world are not I would not be taking. I would not be taking part in that continuous line of history that my generation was somehow different than that. So, yeah, um, it's kind of a long way to get to your question. Sorry.
0: So. So take us through um take us through your first few years in the in the marine corps I, I specifically wanted to ask you about how you saw the transition from being in the marines as a peacetime marine corps and not, I mean there' certainly there was still up op- I'm sure there are operations that Marines were doing, but we weren't sending people wholesale to the middle east um what was what was it like what were the what was the balance between those two and um, yeah, I, I think, you know, so January 98,
2: uh, everything was battalion sized, uh, you know, that, that's what the whole thing was And the Marine Corps, of course, with the muse the Marine expeditionary units, you know, three, uh, Italian landing team, plus, a, a, an air wing, you know, on the three or four amphibious ships out there sitting off the coast of Liberia waiting to do a non-combatant evacuation operation. You know, that, that's the... That was really it. Doing humanitarian assistance. So Bangladesh has a typhoon and the Mew goes in, you know, and at my, at that point in the late nineties, you know, the, the, the West pack, as we called it. So the Mews that came out of California, they went to the Persian Gulf and that's where you wanted to be. Cause those were the guys that had the possibility of maybe seeing something, but the predominant view in the Marine Corps. And I, had at this point in the late nineties, you still had colonels and generals and sergeants major who have been in Vietnam. Um, and they would stand in front of us and they would say, you know, as a young officer, you're at the basic school or wherever, or you, you know, three-star general will come and talk to your unit or something like that. And, and they would say stuff like, we'll never do another Vietnam. You know, they would say stuff like we will never fight in another city. You know, the battle away was the last one we'll ever do, you know, um, and, uh, And, you know, and then you you had the leadership at the time say of the Iraq War, uh, you know, so uh, men like General Peter Pace, who was the vice chair of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, um, General Mike Hagee, who was command of of First Marine Expeditionary Force, and then uh, you had uh, General Jim Jones, who was the command of the Marine Corps, as well as others who were all Vietnam veterans, who were all Vietnam combat vets, you know, infantry officers in Vietnam, who, you know, who, who said we would never, we'll never do this again. You know, and they sure as hell did it. Um, but the attitude was in the 90s during peacetime was that we're, we're not going to do anything like that again. Uh, look, look, uh, the, the George H.W. Bush and Dick Cheney and, and, and Colin Powell got it right. With the Iraq, the first Iraq war, in the sense of that, we would have been caught in an occupation. And so, you know, all we're going to really end up doing is these 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 non-combatant evacuation operations, these humanitarian assistance, these peacekeeping things like in the Balkans, uh, you know, and then we were I was in Okinawa uh, for almost three years. And so it was like and maybe the North Koreans will go crazy and invade or something like that, you know, like that was kind of it. That was really where the mindset was. In terms of what you could expect in your time in the Marine Corps. And so the peacetime Marine Corps, if you can call it that, because it wasn't peacetime, because at the time, as you guys know, we were bombing Iraq every third day during the nineties. I mean, so there was certainly I should have we, given quotations. Exactly, right? We we <laughs> not peacetime, not peacetime for them, but for more or less the institutions. Yeah, you know, it was uh uh it was, it was like the brochure though, you know, and being in third marine division out in okinawa was a complete work hard play hard environment you were either in the field you were either deployed on a training deployment to uh you know somewhere to to south korea to mainland japan to thailand to the philippines to singapore to to malaysia to australia to guam to you know any i mean all kind malaysia brunei i mean we were all over the place or you were you know at my base i was at a small base in northern okinawa called camp schwab you know so we had our own beach you know so like you were either in the field you're on deployment or you're at the beach you know and when you're on deployment you spend half your time out in the field uh and the other half you're on liberty so you're hanging out in tokyo or you're hanging out in, in in bangkok or 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 uh um you know wherever you were you know it was uh uh, it was really, uh, like I said, the brochure that work hard, play hard kind of thing. And then the wars came, um, you know, and there was a lot of us who felt like we were missing it because Afghanistan didn't seem like it was going to be very much. And we had missed it. And then even, even the Iraq war, I was in the Pentagon for the invasion. I was in the secretary of Navy's office. And, um, yeah, I remember in the summer of '03, um, you know, the attitude was like, if you hadn't been there, you missed it because this thing's over. And in fact, I have one, one buddy of mine who, because he had declined augmentation as a, which is a Marine Corps officer thing, be augmented, right? He had declined augmentation and was going to get out. Chris did not go on to his B-bill or shore tour, right? So you, you do a few years in the fleet with the operating forces, then you go on and you you know, you're in three years doing institutional things for the Marine Corps. So you're recruiting or you're teaching at a school or you're down at the drill field or you're, you know, in my case in the Pentagon. And um, yeah. So Chris was like the only one of my friends from the basic school. And the basic school is the officer, the six month long officer training that all Marine Corps officers go through. And, uh, you know, Chris is my only guy, only buddy from that cohort who's going over to Iraq. And I remember his emails from the ship that he was on going over there, his emails, I would get, he would call us draft dodgers. And he'd be like, Hey, you know, like, you know, I'm taking a, I'm taking a camera. I'll take photos so you can show your grandkids what it was like to have been a Marine at war, you know, because that was the attitude. It's going to be over. We're not going to miss it. You know, I mean, like, you know, you write him back. You say, I hope you get shot in the ass. He writes back. Good. Then I can come and hide out with you in the Pentagon. You know, it's like all that type of like, right. We, we, we were so eager for it. And we were so stupid about it. We were so stupid about it, but we were so eager for it and our our knowledge. And we've trusted. We trusted what was being told. I was I would see conversations about uh, the Iraq war in its first year, uh, you know, and I remember clearly, you know, the memorandum from the Secretary of Defense in July of 03 will be down to 30,000 troops by September in Iraq or something like that, you know, <laughs> and right, you know, exactly. And then, then I go and I I read messages on the zipper side from my friends who were in Iraq, right, on, a, on a, the classified computer network, you know, I had a couple of friends who were Intel people over there. So they would send stuff back to me because they could, you know, and it'd be like, you read that, you'd be like, Jesus, How the what? (laughs) You know, like 30,000 When? You know, like this makes no sense. And I better not tell my buddies back there, this is what they're saying over here, else those guys will quit and walk home, you know. Um, which they probably should have done to begin with, right? We all should have done. But yeah, you know, so it was. It was like, you know, this you look back on it and you realize just how much you didn't know, uh, to be nice to myself, you know, how much I didn't know and how much I trusted. Uh when I shouldn't have. And a lot of that goes back to what I was saying earlier before. You know, I mean, I thought I was a student of history. I read all the the right history stuff or thought I was reading all the right history stuff. And I failed to understand how that continuous line up to now. So just as you know, the generals betrayed uh the troops uh in Vietnam by going along with the war, our generals did the same to us, you know.
0: What well I uh I think that's a good place for us to uh, to wrap it up for today. I um, thank you so much for coming and talking to Kagan and myself, giving us your time. Um, I'm really excited for your campaign and, and what's to to come through that. Uh, best of luck with everything that goes on with that. I'm sure we'll, we'll talk before it actually, you know, the, the voting happens and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Um, is there anything before we wrap up that you wanted to plug or let listeners know about?
2: No, I mean just with the campaign, you know it's third party uh, campaign um, you know, uh, it's an uphill battle. We have to get on the ballot. Getting on a ballot is very expensive. I don't think people realize how expensive it is. I didn't realize it until this thing really started. It's expensive. it's it's you're talking, Uh, each signature is costing you when you put it all together, five to $10 a signature, you know, you you have this idea that you're going to do it all with volunteers and it's just not possible. It's just not, not that you need, you know, and the coordination organization and logistics of all. And then, you know, it is, it, 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 gets, it gets expensive very quickly, particularly if you have to start paying people. So, um, and we do try to pay people. We try to pay our volunteers, uh, you know, we try and pay them, a, 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 you know, depending upon what they're doing, you know, we pay them between 18 and $20 an hour. So if you'd like to support us, help us get on a ballot, help allow, make sure that people in North Carolina have a candidate to vote for who believes in Medicare for all, college for all, housing as a human right, uh, annually adjusted level wages, ending the wars, ending the war on drugs, you know, ending the war at the border, et cetera, et cetera, actually, actually doing something about climate change. As well as like a host of other democracy uh, reforms, yeah. Then, then please support us. And the website is MatthewHoForSenate.org. Uh, and I would yeah really appreciate any help people can give. All
0: right, uh, Matt Ho. Again, thank you so much for your time. And and we're on uh, Twitter uh, of, we'll on, I'm help. sure we'll talk again soon. Also, Facebook.com. All right, take care, All right, Hill. thank you. You can find our main blog page and our full collection of episodes at www com, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Patreon, Spotify You name it, almost anywhere you listen, we're already waiting for you And hey, we're always in the market for more Patreon supporters Please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com And if you're not into giving us a monthly payment Think about giving us a couple bucks on PayPal The link is in the show notes Skepticism is one's best armor never you forget people we'll see you next time and listen to my song i hope you'll pay attention i will not be de-